on a cold, cloudy day in December of 1995. A teller at the Bank One in Bloomfield, Ohio, was working the drive-up window when a red and silver pickup pulled up. The teller recognized the truck and the couple inside, as John and Shelley Markley were regulars at the bank. Who she didn't recognize was a man accompanying the Markleys. John was driving the truck, while Shelley sat in the middle with the unknown individual sitting in the passenger seat. Shelley signed a check and passed it to the teller. It was a personal check made to cash for $1,000. The teller took the check and handed the Markleys the money. The trio then drove away. Little did the bank teller know. She would be the last known person to see John and Shelley Markley. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 25, The Disappearance of John and Shelley Markley. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. What would you do if someone killed your best friend and it's been 33 years and it seems like nobody is doing jack? You would start a podcast and go find the answers yourself. And that's exactly what we're doing here at Crime Scene and Cupcakes. So join us as we look for the answers and also find the answers and some other unsolved cases as well here in Kansas. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as many other platforms. You can also find us on all the social media apps, such as Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you name it, we're there. So come find us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Midwest Mystery Files. I am currently sitting at two patrons, so I would like to thank Laura and Teresa for their help. I do want to note quick that I am currently breathing out of one nostril, and I can feel my throat getting a little bit scratchy. You know, the crud is going around. I just recorded a Patreon episode prior to this, and listening back, everything sounded pretty good. But if my voice gets a little wonky, that's why. And lastly, before we start, the trailer you heard at the beginning of this episode is for Crime Scenes and Cupcakes. I strongly encourage you to check out Marianne's podcast. She's a fellow Midwesterner. She does really, really good work, with most of her cases being focused on the state of Kansas. Now, without further delay, on to today's episode. John Markley Jr. was born July 8, 1959, in Valdosta, Georgia, to John M. and Ruth Ann Markley. Reports state that he was the sibling to at least 10 other children, but most reports mainly just name three sisters, Linda, Judy, and born on the same day as him, his twin sister, Bonnie. At some juncture, the family would relocate to Trumbull County in Ohio, and it's here 
that John would meet Shelley Applequist. Shelley Renee Applequist was born November 16, 1963, to Oren and Carol Jean Applequist. She was one of five children with two brothers, Oren Jr. and Jeff, as well as two sisters, Debbie and Cheryl. The family resided in the Warren, Ohio area in Trumbull County. Not much other info is on the public record concerning the early lives of John and Shelley. What I can tell is that they met young and, according to marriage records, were married November 30, 1979, in Trumbull County, Ohio. In the next couple years after their marriage, the Markleys would first give birth to their oldest child and daughter, Ruth. They would follow this event up with four more children, including three girls, Stacy, Bonnie, and Crystal, and their youngest child and only son, Johnny. In December of 1995, the Markley family was residing in a home in the Bristol Township in rural Bristolville, Ohio, on Greenville Road. John was working as an independent long-haul trucker, while Shelley was a stay-at-home mom. A December 2000 article in the Morning Journal would describe John as being a disciplinarian with a strong love for his family, and Shelley as being a capable and organized stay-at-home mom, who could take all five children grocery shopping with little issue or concern of them causing any sort of trouble. Friday, December 15, 1995, started as normally as it probably could have for the Markley family. It was a cold morning, typical of the Midwest that time of year, with temperatures sitting in the 30s, but with high humidity in the air. The rising sun most likely failed to poke its head through the cloudy sky. The clouds were darkest above the Markley home, though not only due to things that had yet to come, but also because of the mourning that was taking place within. John's twin sister, Bonnie Donaldson, had recently lost a lengthy battle with cancer. John had been close with his sister and had taken her loss hard. He had taken time off work to spend time with Bonnie in her final days, as well to attend services after her passing. The latter was the case for this particular day as the wake was set for the evening with a funeral planned for the following day. While John was home making arrangements, the five Markley children would still be heading off to school as usual. That morning, they woke up, ate breakfast, said their I love you's and goodbyes, and headed off to school for the day. The last of them, eight-year-old Johnny, with whom this particular unfortunate day was also his birthday, was walked by his mother to Greenville Road, where they waited for the school bus. Johnny would get on the school bus at 8.30 a.m., not knowing that this would be the final time he would be able to wave goodbye to his mother. The five Markley children would return home from school that afternoon. The first thing they would note is that their father's red and silver Chevy pickup was not at home. Assuming their father had left to run a quick errand, they headed for the house, only to find it unlocked, with neither of their parents appearing to be home. The children noticed several strange things almost instantly. The coffee pot in the kitchen was almost boiled dry, as it was still cooking from the morning. On the kitchen table would sit Shelley Markley's fake leather cigarette case with her Marlboros and her lighter, something she always took with her, even if going to run a quick errand. In the garage, attached to the house, the tarps were missing off of John Markley's prized 1978 red Corvette. John never left the car exposed, ever. Upstairs, the Markley children 
would find the beds unmade. The gun cabinet that housed John's gun collection, and was never unlocked, sat open to jar. And in the bedroom's walk-in closet, a small safe was open, with birth certificates and other documents strewn all about. The children would phone their aunt and father's sister, Judy Yeager, and her husband, Tom. The Yeagers would come home and join the children and wait for their parents to return. Eventually, 5.30 p.m. would roll around, and it would be time to head to the funeral home for Judy and John's sister, Bonnie's, wake. The children, as well as Judy and Tom, hoped that there had been a major miscommunication and that they would see John and Shelley there. Call hours would end at 9 p.m. At that time, there had still been no sign of the absent couple. Tom and Judy would return with the children to the Markley house, finding it to still be empty. At this juncture, someone would notice that John Markley's wristwatch was on a shelf above the stove. John never went anywhere without that watch, sometimes even putting it on before he was dressed for the day. While already concerned, true panic had started to set in with Judy. She called the hospitals in nearby Warren, as well as taxi services and even airlines. There was no sign of her brother or sister-in-law anywhere. At 12.30 a.m. on December 16th, Judy would call the Trumbull Sheriff's Office and report John and Shelley Markley, as well as their red and silver Chevy pickup, missing. Later in the day, Tom and Judy, as well as the Markley children, would attend Bonnie's funeral. Afterward, members of the family would gather for dinner, and Judy would inform everyone of the concerning and strange events of the past day. On Sunday, December 17th, officers with the sheriff's office were dispatched to the Markley home to search the house for clues, as well as interview neighbors and relatives. Unfortunately, the house had already been cleaned and organized by relatives on Saturday, meaning that any clues that may have existed were now gone. It was eventually determined that the only thing that was for sure missing from the home was the Markley's checkbook. It was unknown if any major documents were taken from the safe, and no one was sure what all John owned for guns, so they were unable to tell if any were missing. Deputies and firefighters also searched the area around the home, but nothing was found. Approximately 11 miles to the south, though, in the city of Warren, something would be found. Trumbull County deputies would spot the Markley's pickup truck on the north side of Warren. It was sitting in the parking lot of what was at the time a Strombaugh's home improvement store. Employees of the store were unsure of how long the truck had been sitting in the parking lot, although it had been long enough that someone wrote, Wash me, in the dust coated on the exterior of the truck. The doors to the truck were locked and the keys missing. On the console in the truck sat the Markley's cellular telephone. In the bed of the truck were two tarps being held down by a semi-tire. The tarps, one green and one blue, were the tarps John Markley had used to cover his Corvette. If anything of use in term of evidence or DNA was found, it's never been made publicly known. Investigators would next look into the Markley's bank activity. They would find that on December 15th at 10.36 a.m., a personal check signed by Shelley Markley and made out for cash was cashed for $1,000 at the Bank One branch in Bloomfield, Ohio, about five miles north of the Markley's home. Investigators would question employees at the bank, specifically the woman who worked the drive-up window. The woman would state she was familiar with the Markleys and recognized them as soon as they pulled up. 
who she did not recognize, was another man, who was sitting in the vehicle with them. According to her, John Markley was driving the truck with the unknown man in the passenger seat. Shelley Markley sat in the middle seat between them. According to reports, the bank teller was unable to sufficiently describe the unknown man. What was already a deep mystery was now even deeper. Investigators had the Markleys last being seen five miles north of their home, with their vehicle eventually being found approximately 16 miles south of the bank where they were last seen at, with a mystery man in the middle of all of it. There were dots to be connected, but not enough answers to draw the lines. With Christmas creeping up, and no sign of the Markleys, eight-year-old Johnny would pen a letter to Santa Claus stating, All I want for Christmas is for my mommy and daddy to come home. Unfortunately, Christmas would come and go, with still no sign of John and Shelley Markley. In the time since the Markleys disappeared, John's sister, Linda Mason, and her husband Jean had been living in the Markleys' home to take care of the children. A day or two after Christmas was over, the phone would ring in the Markley house and would be answered by Jean Mason. The caller, on the other end of the line, spoke in a raspy male voice and asked to speak with Ruth Markley, the eldest daughter. After being informed that Ruth was sleeping, the caller then asked for John's sister. When informed that Linda was also sleeping, the caller hung up the phone. The next day, the phone would ring, and Jean would once again answer. It was the same caller from yesterday. This time, the man told Jean that he had John and Shelley Markley, and that unless he was paid $10,000, they were to be sacrificed to a cult on New Year's Eve. The man would then hang up, only to call back a minute later. When Jean picked the phone back up, the man told him to sell John Markley's Corvette to raise the money before abruptly hanging up. After this bizarre but concerning series of calls, the Masons would contact investigators to inform them of what transpired. Trumbull County Detective Wayne Cartarelli would give the couple a suction cup device that could be put on the phone to record the man the next time he called. On December 31st, the man would call the Markley home once again. This time, he would instruct Gene Mason to go to a Raleigh's restaurant by the Eastwood Mall in Warren, Ohio. Jean was to retrieve a note from the change slot of a payphone with instructions for delivering the money. Jean and Detective Cartarelli would travel in separate cars to the restaurant, where Cartarelli would retrieve the note from the payphone. The note, which was handwritten in block letters, read as follows, quote, Go to Kaufman's entrance next to mall entrance. Park in front next to sidewalk. Once inside door, go left to sweatshirts with penguin bird on them. Put package and shirts and leave by same door. Then drive to back of J.C. Penny entrance. Go into telephone next to restrooms. Wait 15 minutes. If no law is seen, a boy will give you a note with the address. If any law or anything doesn't look right, go back and get package. Because no deal. Gene Mason was given a bag full of towels, which he placed in display of the sweatshirts as instructed. Trumbull County Detective Mike Davis dressed in street clothes, kept watch on the display from a distance. He would spot a man, a woman, and a young boy, separate individuals, not a family, who would stop to look at the sweatshirts, but none of them picked up the bag. Jean would return to grab the bag after 15 minutes and convene with Detective Cartarelli in the parking lot. 
in fear that they may have jumped the gun, they decided that Jean should return the bag and try again. While Jean entered the store, Detective Cartarelli received a call from dispatch informing him of a call Linda Mason had received at the Markley home. The man had called the home and told Linda he had seen the police, stating, quote, Where is he at? I see the police. You people are not following my directions. The man would then give new directions, stating that Jean was to take the money a half mile west to the McQuaid's Sunco, a big convenience store and truck stop. This time, Jean left the bag in the store's restroom. Detective Card Arelli watched from a parking lot nearby. Not long after Jean made the drop, he spotted a person wearing a hooded jacket walking into the restroom. Once the person came out, a car drove up with a man behind the wheel and the figure entered the car. At this point, deputies moved in and stopped the vehicle. The man driving was identified as 45-year-old Stephen Durst of Warren, Ohio. The hooded individual was his teenage daughter. Detective Stevens would identify Durst as the man he saw looking at the sweatshirt display where the bag was stashed in the mall. He had also seen Durst's daughter in the area. The Markleys were not in the vehicle. Stephen Durst, like John Markley, was a truck driver and former friend of the Markleys. Earlier in the year, Steve Durst had hit a rough patch and John Markley had invited Durst and his two school-aged children to stay in the Markley home. At this time, Durst was working for John Markley, driving a second semi that John owned. At some point, there was a dispute about money, and Durst was fired and kicked out of the Markley home. John Markley allegedly withheld Durst's final paycheck. Durst was arrested and charged with extortion. He would maintain that he had no idea about the Markley's whereabouts, and while mostly being uncooperative and talking about them, he would agree to a polygraph test on the matter. During the polygraph test, he was asked the following four questions. Were you involved in John and Shelley Markley's disappearance in any way? Did you see John and Shelley Markley after they were reported missing? Do you know where John and Shelley are now? Did you know in advance that John and Shelley disappeared? Durst would answer no to all the questions. The results, however, did show that he had lied in one of his answers, although it was unclear which answer it was. In August of 1996, Stephen Durst was found guilty of extortion and sentenced to 10 years in prison. From what I could find, he was never named a solid suspect, and it's unclear if he's still considered a person of interest in the Markleys' disappearance. After this runaround of events that unfortunately led absolutely nowhere, the Markley family was still left with many questions and few answers. It seemed unimaginable that the two loving parents who owned their own home and ran a business would just up and leave their five children that they loved so dearly. John's sisters, Linda and Judy, would swear up and down that it was completely unlike them and they would never, ever leave their children. So if Stephen Durst hadn't taken them, where could they possibly be? Police would continue to work diligently but with little luck. In a January 5, 1996 article from the Dayton Daily News, Trumbull County Sheriff Thomas Altier would state, quote, There's nothing we can grab onto solidly. We have several things going I'd rather not talk about, but nothing concrete. We can't say we have a good lead here. The next closest semblance of a lead came in October of 1997, 
when well-known, self-proclaimed psychic, Sylvia Brown, appeared on a syndicated talk show with John Markley's sister, Judy Yeager. Sylvia claimed that the Markley's remains could be found along the banks of a creek or drainage ditch near Bowling Green, Ohio, in Wood County. Sylvia would state the locations of the bodies carried the names of two U.S. presidents, Jackson and Taylor, which those names did match a combination of roads and ditches in Wood County. To this, Judy Yeager would tell the Dayton Daily News, quote, I really have a lot of faith in Miss Brown. She's very sincere. But when she came up with Bowling Green, I was a bit skeptical. Why would anyone want to transport dead bodies that far? We're at least three and a half hours from Bowling Green. Bowling Green is across the state, straight to the west of Bristolville. Trumbull County did not send any deputies to investigate the claims themselves. However, deputies with Wood County did perform several searches themselves. Although Wood County Sheriff John Cole was doubtful anything could be found, telling the Dayton Daily News, quote, There's probably seven to ten miles of water to check, and if they are dumped out there, for all we know, they could be as far as Port Clinton by now. Port Clinton sits on the Portage River, where the mouth of the river opens up into Lake Erie, on the north side of Ohio. Despite not sending deputies of their own, Trumbull County Detective Jane Timko would say that Sylvia Brown's prediction had been the only glimmer of hope in solving the case since Stephen Durst's attempted ruse and subsequent conviction. Detective Temko would tell the Dayton Daily News, quote, After almost two years, I'm willing to check out anything. Everything is a dead end at this point. This has just been a really bizarre case. It's at this point the coverage of the case drops off, and from what the public can tell, it becomes very, very cold. In the time after the Markleys' disappearance, a judge would grant custody of the children to Tom and Judy Yeager. In 1999, the Markleys would be declared legally dead, and the three oldest Markley girls would return to live in the house they had grown up in, with the two younger children living with their aunt and uncle as well as their paternal grandmother. The last update on the case I could find came in 2015, when Trumbull County Sheriff Tom Altier spoke to WFMJ21 in Youngstown, Ohio, on the 20th anniversary of the Markleys' disappearance. Altier would tell WFMJ, quote, This has been on my mind for 20 years, this case. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, we got some more leads on this. And it's funny, because now it's the 20-year anniversary. We have interviewed three people last week, and we're looking for three more people to interview. Now, we just need that one tidbit to come up with, and we can hopefully do some indictments. The news report would also state that there are two large boxes filled with papers and documents related to the investigation. If those particular leads ever panned out, the sheriff's office has kept quiet because we have not really heard anything more on movement in the case since then. Now, I know I say this a lot, but when it comes to theories in this case, I'm not going to spend much time on them. Frankly, because there's nothing to work with. Some people do look at Steve Durst with a suspicious eye. Although, after his arrest, from what we can tell, investigators didn't put much stock in him. Sure, he failed a polygraph, but we all know about them and their inaccuracy. They couldn't even tell what question he lied on. 
If anything, he just seemed like an angry former associate looking to exploit the disappearance of the people he felt wronged him. A disgusting move, but it hardly implies he was capable of murder. To me, and this is pure speculation on my part, considering the mess made from the safe, and the fact that the closet safe, as well as the gun safe, were open, this looks a lot like an attempted robbery to me. Someone potentially came in, held the Markleys at gunpoint, and when nothing was found in their home, the intruder forced the Markleys to take them to the bank and withdraw money. It's what happened after that that continues to be the greatest mystery. $1,000 doesn't seem like a lot to risk a double murder, but desperate people have killed for less. One could also argue that maybe the tarps were taken with murder as the plan, since it seems strange that they would take them off the Corvette and put them in the truck, but it's also strange that they were left there. Normally, I don't like to speculate this liberally, but seeing as how I'm not implicating anyone here, and robbery was clearly at least part of the motive, I am allowing myself a little more freedom. Some might say the unknown man in the truck could have been Stephen Durst, but while I don't think he was the most intelligent man, considering his note read like it was written by a first grader, letting himself be seen like that with the Markleys when he could be connected back to them would be an exceptionally dumb move, and I don't put much stock in it being him. Beyond any of that, it's hard to imagine exactly what might have gone down and what happened to John and Shelley Markley. Much like Detective Timko said, this really is one of the most bizarre and strangest disappearances I think I've ever covered. What we do know is that on December 15th, 1995, not just two people, but two parents went missing. Parents, who were also children to others, as well as siblings. Parents of five children with whom they loved so dearly. Five children that John Markley worked hard on the road to support, and Shelley Markley worked hard as a stay-at-home mom to support. Not only was the day already a dark day due to the death of Bonnie Donaldson, John's twin sister, but I also can't imagine the heartache of waving goodbye to your mom on your eighth birthday, much like Johnny Markley did, only for that to be the last time you've ever seen them at all. This December will mark 29 more birthdays for Johnny since then, as well as 29 Christmases that the Markley family won't get to spend with their parents. The Trumbull County Sheriff's Office still investigates the Markley's case. They even still have possession of the Markley's pickup truck, hoping that one day something will connect somebody to this tragic disappearance. Until then, the Markley's case unfortunately remains colder than the dark, cold, midwestern day that they disappeared in 1995. John J. Markley Jr. and Shelley Renee Markley were last seen at 10.36 a.m. at the Bank One branch in Bloomfield by a bank teller. They were driving their 1990 red and silver Chevy pickup and were in the company of an unknown man. Prior to this, they were last seen two hours earlier by their children at their home on rural Greenville Road outside of Bristolville, Ohio. The truck was found abandoned two days later at a hardware store in Warren, Ohio. Shelley is described as a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes and standing 5 foot 4 and 125 pounds. She has freckles, pierced ears, and a scar on her right forearm. The only apparel that she was known to be wearing 
with studded earrings and a gold ring with two diamonds. She was 32 years old at the time of her disappearance and would be 59 years old if alive today. John is described as a Caucasian male with brown hair and green eyes. He stands at 5 foot 10 and is about 150 to 170 pounds. He has a mole and a scar on his back and a scar on his right forearm. It's unknown what he was wearing. At the time of his disappearance, John was 36 years old and if alive today, he would be 63. Foul play is suspected in their case. If you have any information on the disappearance of John and Shelley Markley, please contact the Trumbull County Sheriff's Department in Warren, Ohio at 330-675-2540. If you would like further information on the disappearance of John and Shelley Markley, there is not much to find in a basic search. However, there are several archived articles from the Dayton Daily News. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on my Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and, more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.